welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, friends. Welcome to another Roundtable episode. This is where we're going to analyze the latest games business news. And today I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, and Seb Park, co-founder of Infinite Canvas and venture partner at Bigcraft. Hello. So Game on. Game on, says Calvin. So I, I always have the most awkward intros, and that one is, is awkward too. But I asked uh, ChatGPT. Uh, I said, hey, I'm in a video game <laughs> podcast. What are more video gamey ways of saying hello? And that was its first uh, suggestion. But if you're <laughs> curious, here, 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 here are a couple others that I thought were, were funny. Welcome to the ultimate gaming destination, our <laughs> podcast. So there's that. Uh, I thought this one might be good for you, Maria. It's to me, Maria, and welcome <laughs> to the podcast. So anyways, chat GPT is full of ideas. I think we should definitely definitely leverage it for future episodes. I, I honestly don't know what to say. You go, Aaron. I mean, <laughs> talk about the party. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so an actual an actual news. Um, we're having a party. Um, I'm excited to share that Navik will be co-hosting a party at GDC and San Francisco in partnership with Lean Plum. The event will take place on March 23rd from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Um, it's going to be a fun environment with fantastic networking opportunities, lots of great people. And I, there, I think there might be a live panel, too. Um, RSVPs are limited to 200 people, and slots are filling up. So if you are interested in, in joining this party, make sure to register pretty quickly. The link for learning more and signing up is in the episode description. So check that out. Should be a lot of fun for those who can make it. Is it, is it going to include chat GPT hosting messages? It should. I don't know. I don't know how that would work at a live party, but um, if there's a way to incorporate that in, I would be all for it. Hell yeah. Well, this is a great transition into the first topic for today. So, Seb, <laughs> you've been applying uh, generative AI to game development. And we've talked about it in the past on the podcast, but it was very theoretical. So, yeah, we're looking forward to actually sharing some applied experiences of working with AI. Yeah, I mean, beyond creating really cool openings to a podcast, I mean, like, realistically, to take a step back, Gen AI is, oh, first of all, a weird anal- uh, shortening of concatenation of the word, in part because I always thought Gen AI would be like generalized AI, which is its own world of awesome that we are nowhere close to being. And people should really calm their horses about like, <laughs> like we are no closer to gener- like generalized AI with Gen AI than we have ever been. But one of the really cool things that we often see with new technology, and this is something that I love as both an entrepreneur and an investor, is like how do you apply it, right? T- historically speaking, it's about a 10-year gap 
between the theoretics and the applied nature of sciences. So fundamental sciences take about 10 years in material sciences before they start showing up on the Mars rover, for example. That is, I think, one of the cool parts about this new application layer of generative AI. Reinforcement learning-based tooling has been around for about a decade. And this is like really the first time we've seen a really cool user flow and UI flow that allows us to like leverage it. Some people have been messing around doing some really fun things, but the thing that we've been using the most inside Infinite Canvas is actually to improve our workflow. So what's a good example of this, right? As you probably know, most of the time when it comes to game um, development is not actually in the coding, right? It's a lot in the playtesting, it's a lot in the QA, it's a lot in the user feedback. Historically, the way this has worked is that you have a junior to mid-level PM sit in a room take notes, and then take turn those notes into specific cards for your like project tracker, either Jira, Trello, ClickUp, whatever. What's been really fun is that there's a lot of these workflow things that we've just been able to solve inherently with ChatGPT and free up our um, product management resources for more theoretical things. A good example of this is that we now ingest all of our QA sessions. So we have like senior and junior and like user testing QA where we have people play our games and they just talk incessantly. It's like an hour and a half of nonstop verbal communication feedback and how these people are playing these games. Instead of having then someone go through and troll through the two hours of conversations in order to come up with an interesting answer, what we now have is we, uh, we record and analyze the data to make it go from voice to text, which is a, that's not trivial, but it's, like a, it's, not, not, it's not trivial or non-trivial. It's like somewhere in between. And then we have an LLM model, either be ChatGPT or our own implementation, analyze that text to pull out what are the five things that we should be working on in terms of improving the game? What are the bugs that people talk about the most? Like, how do you triage this? And it's done an amazing job. Like, it's really fundamentally changed our workflow. It's saving definitely tens of hours a week. And that equates to like entire headcounts in the company. And it's really made me bullish on this technology in general because it's not a theoretical value add. It's literally allowing some of the worst parts of being a PM, which is just like listening to feedback and trying to write it down into cards and making it, you know, freeing up people to spend more of their time on, hey, what should we do with these things? How should we prioritize these five takeaways? Like, are these takeaways important? How should we triage it? How should we implement it? Which is really cool. That's amazing. What tools are you? Yeah, that, that's really cool. I'm curious, what tools are you using to do that? Is it just chat GPT or are you using other other tools too? Yeah, so we're using a variety of different tools. The way we record our meetings or our online discussion is both through voice recorder, at which point you just like record a voice, but we also have stuff where it's like in real time, either using a combination of like Firefly's AI. There's like three to five different products on the market that do a lot of like voice to text transcription. So we've been trying all of them. There's also some like open source implementations that allow you to just like create a bot and, and upload it to Discord and have it record Discord conversations. Obviously, with these are all people who are either contractors, employees, so we have consent from the perspective of like, yeah. or if they're or they're volunteer playtesters, at which point we get their consent as well. And then the output of it, there are three main mechanisms you can use. You can either use it against your own trained LLM, which I don't recommend doing. It doesn't output very interesting or well. ChatGPT in particular is amazing at summary. Like it's just like one of its core uses is to take large volumes of text and summarize it down. And then there's some other even like more interesting stuff. Like uh, there are some older implementations based on ChatGPT or on GPT two 
that we've been seeing, and they have been trained mm. specifically to this type of information, and that's been a ton of fun as well. Uh, it's what's weird and what's really interesting about it from a technology standpoint is that this implementation isn't so hard or so difficult that like we would spend a lot of time to analyze it theoretically before we implement it to the workflow. Its results were strong enough day zero that we just immediately, a little bit like if you do drug trials, if the drug is effective enough, you cancel the A-B testing and you just like deploy the drug to make sure people are okay. Like this is like probably the first time in my career where like a new tech, we experimented with it in a small case and it was so good, we immediately just like deployed it across the entire company. Yeah, well, I want to know, I want to know the other side. Mm-hmm. Do you have any challenges or yeah shortcomings that you're frustrated with and could be avoided? Yeah, so I mean, the biggest ones are framing, right? Like it's really interesting if you think about it from a boomer perspective, which I have been told increasingly. Alex Takei, who I think does one of the shows here, she called me a boomer the other day and, and I completely agree, which is <laughs> I learned how to read encyclopedia books like back in, in, in elementary school. Like I learned cursive, I learned how to type, and I learned how to read an encyclopedia and dictionary. That was literally something that you did in like third grade. It's like, hey, look up the definition of this word in a dictionary with a physical dictionary mm-hmm. and write it out. And part of the heuristics around that is like understanding alphabetical order and page ordering. That's super important to understand how, libra- how like dictionaries and encyclopedias are ordered. In the Google era, in the like search engine era, it's been about like extracting keywords and having those keywords therefore find you things you're interested in. You don't need nor should you write sentences on Google. It really is keyword, keyword, keyword. Let's see, you need to up, up, uh, figure out when to renew your passport. You look, type in US passport renewal, and then you type in whatever detail you want. It's like trip to Europe, right? And then you say, oh, you got to renew six or 12 months in advance. I hear the processes, and those are search terms that come out. Especially when we're dealing with LLMs, and especially when we're do, dealing with generative bits, what you learn is a heuristic around how you frame the question and how you get the output you want. The important thing for us is we don't need an output that's suited for a lead QA person to then triage. That's an okay output. A better output is one that already goes through and says, hey, here are the re- reproduction cases for the bug. Right, like here is what they think the reproduction cases ought be, which allows us to already frame in a language ready for engineering. Right, that I think is the mm-hmm. biggest challenge that we've we've run into, which is the first version of it just didn't have the exact delta we wanted. There was a gap in understanding, and so it still required a pass. Much better pass than before when it was a pass of like twenty thousand words, but like still required the pass of our product team to go through and go through. As we get better in terms of framing and scoping and the sandboxing of this information, that has been more and more automated. And so that's been probably our biggest challenge is it's basically learning a new language. I talk, yeah. I talk differently to ChatGPT or to LLM models than I do to Google, right? And I talk to Google very differently than I did to a physical dictionary. For one, the dictionary didn't respond. So it's, it is a really, that is probably the biggest challenge that we're running into from an operational standpoint other than, for example, that uh, you know, sometimes the outputs are just bad, uh, and, and then you have to deal with that. Uh, a good example of this is that there's an article right now on Wired about how like, ChatGPT is great for giving poker advice. I can assure you most of the advice you're getting from ChatGPT is wrong, because it doesn't take into account factors that are really important, and 
is trained against a data set that involves bad poker players. Well, I think that's really exciting. And um, it's also not the direction that I thought that this that you would take this, uh, Seb, talking more about <laughs> like the inner company workflow side of things that, you know, it, it has things to do with games, but, you know, not really. It's it's just like all of the other like admin and management type of work that goes into, you know, managing a, a company and just the things that you have to do. And I think that's that's really exciting. I saw a chart um, the the other day. Uh, I think it was Toby Luque, who's the CEO of Shopify, who, who, who put it out there. And it was basically showing the number of workers needed at an S&P 500 company to generate $1 million in revenue. And the chart, which starts in the 1980s, to now is just, you know, it right, just, right. it just, it just plummets. And I, I mean, I'm pretty convinced that this AI as a platform is the next wave that is going to continue that trajectory further. And it's not alone, but what you just laid out, just kind of being on the pioneer and testing some things out shows that, yeah, you, you actually can be more productive just by getting creative and mm-hmm. figure out how to use these tools as assistance, recognizing they're not perfect, but also we're so early at this too, right? Like right. it's only going to get better and better and more specialized tools are going to come to exist as well. So, I mean, I'm excited about this. I've been thinking about it similarly, actually, in some ways that I've been kind of testing out, you know, not like that we do a lot of content, we do a lot of, you know, like episode description summaries and stuff. And I've been kind of poking around, I still don't think ChatGPT specifically is good enough where I would feel comfortable just like, you know, handing it things and then it spits out content and then I just publish it. And I would, you know, I still have to like go in and, you know, do all the editing and that type of work too. But, um, but yeah, I should definitely be exploring more of the workflow side of things as well. I think that's that's really cool. There, there's a couple and, of things um, in there, Aaron, that I want to just unpack real quickly. The first of which yeah. is... Uh, the understanding of like applied work. Uh, I have to be honest with you. This is, I think, one of the biggest problems I see in gaming entrepreneurship, where people come from SaaS or Bass or other segments of the consumer product, and they're like, "Oh, we get to make games. That means that we don't have any of these issues, right?" And it's actually, it's the opposite. It actually means that the interaction flow is a lot worse, right? Like we have to deal with gravity. Gravity sucks. Physics is horrible. Like the testing is really bad, and. Because we're an end-user consumer product, always in gaming, it ends up being even a harder hurdle. And what I mean by that is, if you're, if your, let's say, podcast forces you to use um, Slack to communicate, you don't really have another option. And so, like your bar for understanding Slack and using Slack is far lower because you're like, look, we just need to use this. Like, there is no other option for me other than to use what the company or the org I'm working with is using. From a gaming perspective, we have to understand that it's super red ocean. And so anytime our game has a bug or does not produce what we want it to produce, suddenly that's massively negative to us. They can churn immediately. And so a lot of our workflow, especially at Infinite Canvas, has always been, hey, like, what are people playing? How do we get them to play an extra minute? extra five minutes, extra 10 minutes. And a lot of that has come to understanding not only game loops, which you know you generate intuitions around, and that's great. But it's also just making sure the end product is minimally vi- a minimally viable game as opposed to a minimally viable product, where it's like the game is good enough, it has loops enough such that people continue to play it. Survivor.io, I thought was a great example of this, where the release version of Survivor.io was already a ton of fun. 
But there were only a certain number of levels, and it didn't have nearly the number of hedonic loops that Habby is known for. It had like three at lunch. But that was enough for them to get tuned enough to get people onboarded onto the game. And now they're implementing all the other Archero things that they have as a playbook. And what's really cool about this process, as well as its implementation, is like we're starting to see it in our um, flat concept art image outputs, right? We, it outputs an interesting thematic, and then we're able to then send it to one of our graphic artists who then like draws an eyes and redraws a hand, right? Like that saves a ton of time, but super important from iteration speed. And so I think the coolest part of Gen AI on that first part is the understanding of this is a tooling that allows us to actually compete with consumer levels of productivity, in part because our bar has always been higher on the gaming consumer side. To your second point, which I think is the, hey, is ChatGPT ready to write descriptions yet? I will challenge and push you on this because I wonder this all the time. I often hear, especially my colleagues tell me that technology is not quite ready to do the thing they want it to do. And the thing that we've been approaching, which has been very strange and like sort of like a heuristic jump, is like, are we framing this right? Like, I never yell at a com- com- computer when I write a piece of code in Python and it doesn't execute the thing I want it to execute. That's on me. Like, that's like, oh, like, did I articulate to this computer properly to get the output I want? And one of the cool things about this tech, especially from a game development and design perspective, is we completely agree. It has been very bad about generating the types of things we want. We have been getting better. Like some of the title names that we have, it just spit out emojis. And I'm like, what the hell is it doing? Why is it just spitting out a Roblox game name that only has emojis in it, right? And then we tested it and it was right. <laughs> like it was our own precept of words when some people just want emojis. There's something about backlinking and other things that it's a little bit more complicated, but like it is such an interesting mental model to be like, hey, what if we attach, attack this from the perspective of like, it's going to be right, we're the wrong ones. How do we solve for that? And I think that's been the coolest part about Gen AI's, Gen AI's application to gaming consumer at all. Yeah, that, that's true. I need to play around with it a bit more. I mean, a lot of it has just been like, well, it's just it's just wrong. <laughs> and it what it's so saying. Um, so so I think that's the, the biggest are so hurdle. wrong. Uh, what yeah. other things that are wrong, by the way, and from the poker perspective, if someone has sub 20 big blinds and there's 50 big blinds in the pot and they go all in, that's usually a call, right? It's not usually a fold. And it's only a fold if you listen to people on Reddit poker. Right. Like that's (laughs) uh, if you if you think that you are a jerk and you ask ChatGPT and it doesn't agree with you, no, that's trained against Reddit. Those people never think they're the jerk. They're always the hero in their own stories. (laughs) So that's always a lot of fun. I love that takeaway that we could be wrong when trying to use these tools. And I I think I I can't stop thinking if an AI or something else went to come and see what kind of information we humans produce, they would have the same comments about us. So does ChatGPT have more probabilities than us in being wrong? I'll <laughs> yeah. leave you with this. Yeah, I, I, definitely, I definitely am concerned about anthropomorphizing ChatGPT because I do think that's a wrong yeah. framing. But certainly from a tool perspective, if I saw someone using a screwdriver as a hammer, I'd ask a lot of questions. And so, and so I think similarly, that's something that we've been thinking about a lot internally. And, and it's been really fun. It's been nice to like work on technology that actually returns value immediately as opposed to um, like VR or, or Web3 recently, where it's like, hey, the returns are sort of like in the future. 
and like understanding technology is important now, but it's like you're not going to see anything. Whereas here, I'm like, I can literally point to a line item and be like, oh, this person is no longer working on that. That's saved us like 5% of the dev cost. Yeah, the last thing I was going to say is that I was totally going to anthropomorphize. Anthrop- no, what's the word? I'm totally, I, I can't speak. Anthropomorphize. anthropomorphize. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so I was saying that, like, yeah, we should totally invite ChatGPT on an episode uh, at some <laughs> point, and like, just ask it. You know, like, we have questions that we prep, and um, you know, have it be more like uh, text to speech, <laughs> and just see what it has to say on I some really, of these crazy topics. I really um, want to do this. There. That sounds Can like we? a lot. It would just of be fun. fun. It would be ridiculous, but it would be fun. Let's have a segment of ChatGPT. Well, one thing that I want to flag because I think it's important before we move on to another new topic is that I think there's a lot of fear mongering with like, hey, now that let's just let's just use our workflow for example, where it's like now that like someone's like putting together the cards, does that mean you're not gonna hire junior PMs anymore? Right. And I think that's a fair fear in a lot of ways. But the honest answer is no, we're gonna still hire junior people and we're gonna still need people. It's just you get to work on things that are fun as opposed to are miserable and boring, right? Like I too was a junior technical product manager at some point. I too also hated putting in the cards when and doing bug testing for dots. Right. I remember the Android version just wasn't as performance and it was off by like milliseconds and reproducing bugs and like listening to QA feedback and user testing the equivalent of user testing.com back then. And that was not fun. It is much more fun to be in my seat now, just to be completely frank. Right. Like, and so what I would push people to say is like, hey, yeah, like you're right. Some of the more low-level, entry-level work may disappear in its original form. But what's going to end up happening is that the entry-level work that we consider to be more mid-level now is going to become entry-level. And that's going to be awesome because it'll free up people to do more and more cool stuff. I think we have to move on to the to the next topic, which is. Yeah, rumor discussions about the CSGO. Yeah. Did you hear the yeah, go? So, yeah. CS, go, go, go. go okay. Go. I hear you, Maria. Uh, so yeah, a couple of days ago, it was leaked and reported that CSGO 2 might be coming out, but on closer inspection, it actually looks more likely that instead of getting a full-blown sequel, CSGO might just be migrating to Valve's newer Source 2 game engine which would occur as a major update. Uh, most people seem to think that this update would simply port most everything over, like maps, skins, and stats, but um, it would also come with a few upgrades to things like graphical rendering, fewer frame rate drops, better matchmaking, things like that. Um, and so, you know, from a business standpoint, and of course this is still in rumor territory, um, but from a business standpoint, there actually isn't too much to discuss. CSGO, a decade after launch, continues to grow its player base and has a thriving economy. Um, so so not blowing that up <laughs> and making, making everybody switch to a completely different game, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I imagine we'll learn the actual details of this sooner than later. They might even be out by the time this episode airs. Who knows? Um, but I figure we can still talk about a couple quick angles here. And and first is just the is just the idea of engine upgrades and shifting games to new game engines. Um, doing that might be easier than creating a new game from scratch, but it's it's still a headache. And, and Seb, I was just curious to hear your uh, your thoughts on just like the practical considerations on engine, like on taking a game to a new engine and what is involved in that, um, and. If any insights there just inform 
what the heck is going on with CSGO right now. Oh my goodness. I would not recommend doing it. And for what's worth, like the people at CSGO weren't doing it either, right? For context, they're on the engine that was released like in 2004, right? And right. and the, the new engine was released a year after CSGO and they've been on their engine for about a decade now. It will look better, but this is back to the bar when we talk about um, physics engines and just engines in general is you have no freedom. Like you're at the behest of the nuances that it's not even documented. So a good example of this is uh, a really proper physics engine has the ability for a fast enough projectile to degrade in trajectory over set amount of distance, right? And that's how reality works. A bunch of engines didn't calculate that a decade ago because it's computationally headache and like there's no re- reason to. A bunch of new engines can calculate that. But how does that change the game flow? Right? Does that completely change the style of game? Does that change how it works? There's something called um, like that's like scan hit, which is like instantaneously hits a person as soon as it's launched versus a projectile, right? And that I think is something that wasn't different at all in Quake, for example, uh, with the exception of their like the bazooka or the gun. But in modern shooters, you will see that delta. And so what's really interesting is that almost certainly, if they were to release Source 2 CSGO, the game will be fundamentally different at the highest, highest level. For pro players, the game will be different for them. For everyone else, it will be imperceptible. But on the back end, if you care about, hey, the specific interaction of a specific mechanic, oh my goodness, that is so painful to program. That's so painful to QA. That's so painful to implement, in part because everything's different. The nuances are different. The language might be the same, but if there is a five-frame difference in implementation and tick rate, for example, suddenly the game is played differently by speedrunners or suddenly things are different. My favorite example that I think is really visible to people, especially if they had old TVs, is the difference in how Mario Kart 64 rendered in Europe than North America. European Mario Kart was 64 was much slower, like literally like 10% slower than American Mario Kart 64, just because our TVs had different frame rates. We have 29.97 here, Y'all have something else. I don't, I don't really know what it is, but I know it's lower. And so like the NTSC standard was just different. And so how does that mean that someone who plays European, like who's mastered the art of European drifting in Mario Kart 64 can play North American version? Eventually, but it was different at the time. And I think that's one of the things, like imagine that for every single edge case that someone's been complaining about. And that's what it's like to move from one engine to another. Well, do you think this is, I mean, a situation of, well, CSGO will have to upgrade eventually, so it might as well bite the bullet now? Like, do you think that's what's going on? or I, I don't know, honestly. I, I mean, actually, I do know. I know for a fact that almost every single gaming engineer I've met in my life has always wanted to refactor the code and ship to the new engine, like, <laughs> like if they're sufficiently mm. bored. <laughs> and I also know <laughs> that every engineer who's working on the live ops hates doing that. So I imagine the combination of the two. It will certainly look better. It will certainly be highly more performance and it'll certainly be awesome, despite the fact that Source 2 is, again, like 16 years old or, 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 or 10 years old now. Uh, right. It'll, it'll be fun to see how that changes. I do think, from a competitive nature, we will see probably the most number of changes at the highest level of gameplay because that's where you'll see the most edge cases come out. I looked into the Believer companies 
55 million Series A raise. And so I wanted to dive into that. It was led by Lightspeed and it had key support with most most companies that you expect by now, A16Z, Bitcraft, Riot Games, we continue the list. Um, Anton Gorodeski, uh, co-founder of Invest Game, he actually shared a couple benchmarks to help us size what this, the, the value of this raise. So the biggest Series A uh, was probably monsters they raised 200 million back in 2021 and also that year forte raised 185 million and what you might be thinking now is oh i thought that you know the vc environment was cooling down in gaming so how is a company doing a series a at 55 million and it is not surprising when we start diving into the details so first let's look at the co-founders former riot games vice president Michael Chow, who's now CEO, and the chief product officer is Stephen Snow, who was a founding member of Riot Games. And he, I think it was the EP of League of Legends. Second, if we look at the C-level and the leadership team that they already have onboarded, it has talent from Microsoft, Riot Games, Bungie, EA, and more. It's just like tick, tick, tick. And then you look at third, their mission, which is to bring to life what before was considered players' wildest dreams. And it's about bringing players together. And it's more than open world, it's open narrative where players are actually shaping the story of the game. And I don't think that is a new pitch. We've seen some new companies entering, wanting to explore building more than a game. It's a transmedia universe, really. And then, um, yeah, that's actually the fourth, the fourth section. And I like seeing all of these entries where it's almost i feel it's post triple a it's like triple a veterans wanting to explore what quadruple a is and the way that i've managed to boil this down is that i actually think that it is games as a lifestyle which is now following on from games as a service is becoming more than a service to the player it's just yeah you play a game to be part of that whole universe so yeah i, I with this take i was wondering what what do you think What do you think about this? To take a step back, one thing that's really important for people to look at from this deal, and I think full disclosure, I'm a venture partner at Bitcraft. Bitcraft's involved in this deal. I know Navig does work with Lightspeed, who are the, like Moritz, Shanshan, and Paul Murphy, who are the leads on this. And also full disclosure, like worked with Paul Murphy (laughs) like a decade ago on Dots. So like there's a lot of intersection here. I think for everyone on this call, myself in particular, there are two things that, at the highest of high levels, we really need to make sure about. The first one is that this doesn't somehow reduce the pool of money for other types of games or other types of game products. One of the biggest things I see on the internet right now is the idea of, hey, is this deployment of capital mean that we won't see deployment capital in other types of gaming content or other types of things? And that's just not the case. I think people fundamentally misunderstand how venture works in that regard. You really shouldn't care if a venture fund returns or not. It's not your money. It's not anyone's money other than the LPs. The venture fund should care if they return or not. But as a consumer, I really dislike the idea that somehow these guys shouldn't have received the money or that somehow by deploying $55 million into this company, that another company that quote unquote is more deserving or more interesting or otherwise is not getting the money. That is just not how investments work. That's not how valuations work. That's not the reality of the world. What I will say is that from a venture standpoint, and also full disclosure, not my deal. It's not, it, this is not the world I operate in in terms of venture. I actually operate more on the edges. What's interesting here is that typically in any given cycle, 
every three to five, like three to five deals come up every year that are the hot deals of that year. And then it's just a fight for allocation. And everyone's like, wow, it hits all these heuristics that we have that will make this game interesting. Believer hits those things for sure. They have a really interesting and successful founding team with track record in gaming, which is hard to find, by the way. Like most people don't haven't been part of a founding team of a multi-billion dollar gaming company because there's like a half dozen of them. And it's like, so whenever Kevin Chu shows up or Holly Liu shows up or these guys show up, that's always going to generate some interest. The second thing is the vision's really large. There is no simple next-gen thing here. There's a large enough vision that's such that if they are successful, there is some upside there. So from a pricing perspective, it's really a combination of like combining someone's like pre-seed, seed, series A, and maybe even a series B. At this price point, I think the... Uh, Full disclosure for other people, those whether it's called Series A or Seed, that's all just language. It doesn't actually really matter. It's just think about, hey, they have $55 million to build something interesting. As an end consumer, I think it's really cool. I think we should all think it's cool. And let's see what they do. Will they fail? Most of the time, startups and games fail. Games fail at an even higher rate than startups. So like the answer is most likely. But now we have a really interesting team that has the resources to pursue a really large vision. And let's see what happens there. I think that's a really cool and interesting framing of this. And on the flip side, I also think that this is indicative of gaming as a whole, Maria. Like you said, people are caring about gaming more. And so as a result, there are theoretically more upside cases for gaming than historically. The old upside case for a game studio is you create StarCraft and you sell a bunch of copies at Best Buy. The new upside case can be you create Riot Games and you have a live ops service that does something like a billion five or two billion recurring revenue every year with very low churn, right? So that I think is the big delta that we see here. I will say that I don't have like any inside information on this. This is not something that I'm seeing. This is purely as an external observer. I want to emphasize that it is just not taking money out of someone else's pocket. And so I've seen that comment a bunch. We should just all be happy that we might get one of the coolest games on Earth sometime in the next decade. Knock on wood. I just don't think it's a coincidence that if we look at what probably Monsters is trying to build, yes, it's more it's about creating this network of studios that are building AAA games and shared processes and technology, I believe. But if you look at their pitch of what kind of games they're trying to build, again, we see the, the same keywords Seeing it's um, adventure driven, it's open narrative, it's the player that is helping build a story and driving what the game is. And yeah, I just don't think that is a coincidence. It, for me, it shows a pattern of what certain key players in the industry believe will be the next generation of what gaming means. Yeah, and I think it's the first deal that Moritz led over at Lightspeed. And, you know, it's I'm, one of the first deals I've seen Paul Murphy's name come up and Sean Sean is amazing over there. And so I, I can imagine there's a lot of interest in that side. I just think that the framework is a little bit wrong, like people externally judging because it's so easy to create content. And by the way, you can check on ChatGPT just to bring it full circle. It's so much easier for ChatGPT to write criticism of something than to write something in support of something. When they write criticism, it looks really good. <laughs> and when it writes something in support, it's really hard. Uh, and I, I do think that we should not stop caring as a society whether or not venture funds return or not. That's not our job, unless you're a part of a venture fund. And as consumers, we should be like, oh, let's see if they make an interesting game uh, that's going to be fun to play. And if not, who cares? I was going to push back a little bit. I think it does matter a bit in the sense that like, still venture funds succeeding 
is what will probably drive future capital <laughs> to to invest in even more games um, across the ecosystem. I, I totally hear what you're saying, and I agree with uh, probably like 90% of it. But I, I think still creating an environment where win-wins happen is still important. And um, setting the right beginning for companies to succeed, um, that is a win for the founders and a win for... Um, investors. I think that still is pretty important. I don't know enough to comment like on the details of this deal of whether raising you know over 50 million is too much. I don't know the valuation or anything like that. Um, but um, but I think you're right that it checks all of the boxes. And I think the the vision is big and it's interesting to see just as a trend, like more of the the transmedia side of, of things start popping up more and more. And this seems like a team that, you know, has experience of succeeding elsewhere um, to, to pull that off. Because as you were saying, um, Seb, like the, the upside of of the big wins <laughs> is perhaps bigger than what people would have thought a decade ago. Because as we've seen with, with Riot, like obviously it took them a long time to grow from just League of Legends, but then now they have a, an ecosystem of games, but also increasingly it's looking to be transmedia properties too that's just getting just getting started. And so I don't know whether having that mindset at the very beginning, whether that helps or hurts in the sense of like whether that like spreads your mission too thin, uh, like or spreads your focus too thin at the beginning on on too large of a mission, or if it actually helps to be able to orchestrate all of all of these pieces at, at once with a ton of capital and a ton of effort from from the ground up. So I'm really curious to see where where that where that goes. But yeah, I'm excited to see what they spin up even though I don't know all the the details here. For sure. I I I will I will add to that and say one of the coolest things about venture is that you get to ignore KPIs. It's one of the weirdest things about uh token Venture, by the way, because like tokens are publicly traded, so people are asking you quarterly questions about what you're doing. Like one of the reasons why like privately held venture backed companies get to do really cool things is that I don't have to worry about my Q1 results. I can make investments into my Q1 for next year, as an example, or the year after, and that allows people to make really interesting decisions on different timescales. One of the fun things about Believer is that they will now have the resources and the headcount and the people to make a decision that's based on like a 36, 48, 60-month timescale, as opposed to if you were currently an executive at uh, Scopely, for example, you have a quarterly KPI. You have a quarterly earnings right. thing. You have an annual yeah. earnings report. And you just make different decisions. Like You just make fundamentally different decisions. And to your point, Aaron, we have no idea if that's correct or not. Gaming venture hasn't been around enough for us to know, <laughs> right? Like, it's not as though when Riot raised money, they were like, oh, we're going to do something for like 20 years from now. Like, they're no, we're going to try and make this free-to-play game work. And then we'll go from there. And then we'll go from there. So I think that's going to be really interesting to see if the, like what this looks like. And from a pure uh, gaming venture standpoint, I also agree, it is important for some of these guys and gals to succeed. I will push back and say it's not important for them all to succeed, though. So I think it's totally fine if, yeah, of course. If, if some of those guys and gals don't make it. And I think that's going to be fine for gaming venture the, as a whole. We will see if it looks more like movies or if it looks more like the publishers of movies. That I think is going to be really interesting to see the next decade. That, we talk about exits. You know, you're building a new company and you probably have an exit inside. How do you believe that 
this yeah venture capital and for example these kind of raises how does that affect the prospects of the future of e- exiting exiting is harder the larger the round is just as a fundamental the hurdle rate that you need to achieve to clear your preference stack is so large that like if you've raised two million dollars on a ten million dollar valuation and then your company sells for thirty million dollars not only you but all your employees and your all your investors will see a return like that's unequivocally the case one of the cool things about exits in that regard is that uh, that's not necessarily what you want as an investor either, right? That's, I think, the fundamental, they, they say the stone soup issue of venture capital and startups is that uh, venture startups in a lot of ways is a very privileged thing to do. Like I, I talk to my co-founder Todd about this all the time. Like we're in a very privileged situation to have our own startup because uh, I can tell you a decade ago, I there's no way in hell I could have uh, started the startup. I had no exits. I had no, like, it was just really dumb to have done all the startups I did at the beginning of my career, right? Because it was like, oh, like, if things fail, and a lot of them did, like, I have no money at the end of the day. I have like 3K left in savings. Like, what do I do? Like, I need to go get a job at Google, or I need to go figure out, I need to go be a barista or a bartender, right? Like, there is that downside where it's much easier after a couple exits or after you've solidified yourself and your family and you're good to go, to be like, okay, cool. I should make a best decision for the company in a 10-year time span as opposed to for the best decision for me in a 12-month time span, which might just be to get that money, right? I think that's like the hardest thing to understand. And partly why when I give advice to entrepreneurs, I'm like, hey, no one talks about this, but you should really do a full analysis of your own financial situation, your parents' health, your partner's health. Your partner's job opportunities. What makes you guys happy? Like that's all really important because it's a hell of a journey if you don't know what those things are. So I think this lends itself to an interesting conversation to just talk about exit opportunities more in general. And actually, as the games industry has changed over time, both the size and the type of companies and just the business models of companies that lend themselves to consolidation or not, exit opportunities have already changed um, over the past, but I think we should expect them to in the future as well. And I think maybe to start before even looking at the future is just to recognize what's going on in the present and what that says about, you know, just how investors are thinking about um, like the the exit opportunities when they fund startups. Um, And um, Seb, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. We've talked a little bit um, just kind of in the prep about like Rovio is looking to sell at, you know, a sub $1 billion valuation. And if that, you know, as a company that has very well established IP, has a great track record, is profitable, and it's, you know, selling out below a a $1 billion valuation, like what does that mean? Um, for the ecosystem, how should we be extrapolating from examples like that right now? It, it's first of all, if you think of Rovio as the bull case for gaming, like there's a lot of issues, right? It's like eight to ten x EBITDA, not revenue, right? Up from five x EBITDA, and it does have a lot of things that we like. It has strong IP. It has transmedia elements. It has a engaged audience that pays them a lot of money, right? If that's the case, we're starting to look at some interesting problems in terms of an analysis of what the bull case will be. Fortunately for the rest of us, there are other bull cases, right? So, for example, the King acquisition was like, what, five, six billion dollars, if I remember correctly. The Activision um, Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft is $69 billion, right? There are other examples of growth in the space, but I think the price of acquisition is really interesting. Do you treat games like movies? 
like the actual movie themselves. Like, do you treat a game like the copy of um, what's a good example of like a single shot movie? Oh, like your name, like the Makoto Shinkai movie, right? Like if it's a singular movie, historically movies are best funded by like reverse pickup deals, right? There's like an exchange of money and IP creation and you get the thing on the product and everyone makes some money and they call it a day, right? Or is it a tech platform? Is it a social media platform? Is it something that like it's going not only generate revenue, but it's recurring revenue? One of the biggest issues with esports historically has been that a lot of their revenues have been non-recurring sponsorship revenue. There's nothing consumer or interesting about that. There, there's no reason to give them a 20x multiple or a 10x multiple or a 1x multiple on that revenue because it just doesn't exist necessarily the year after. Uh, we saw this with IMG going public or trying to go public where an agency that doesn't rely on consumer goodwill to grow its revenues is not given a proper multiple by the market. So it's a weird world where we're dealing with EBITDA versus revenue multiples. And what's correct? Is is the Activision Blizzard price correct? Is the King um, Games price correct? Or is the Rovio price correct? And I can just assure you, if it's Rovio is correct, then we got a lot of things to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just add that, I mean, talking about Rovio and they're looking to sell at, what was it, eight to 10 times EBITDA, the King acquisition back in the day, that took place at about nine times EBITDA. So it's not actually all that different. Um, naturally, mm-hmm. and we don't probably want to overfocus this conversation on just mobile too, right? Because mobile has its own slew of, of issues right now that's pretty unique to that that segment of gaming. But I, I don't know. I mean, there's no one perfect metric, whether it's revenue or EBITDA, to kind of like compare contrast all of these different types of companies. The reason why... Um, uh, you know, exits happen, and in the M and A sense, you know, it occurs for different reasons, right? Either companies are acquiring what they lack, such as you know, tech acquiring other tech, or such as when console companies, you know, have been trying to get into mobile in the past, or things like that. And sometimes, like the fear of not having something important that is going to be a big driver for the future of the industry, sometimes that fear pushes up prices, and maybe we're just at a a time in the market where some companies don't have that that level of FOMO for certain things. And and FOMO, you know, it ends and <laughs> flows with the market. I mean, second, a lot of times too, it's just large companies thinking they can unlock more upside um, from what they acquire more so than if those companies were standalone, mm-hmm. um, which I think can still exist in, in some cases. But again, in a, in a place like mobile, where in the past, Zynga acquired several studios because it was able to to reinvest and support um, those those games in a way that maybe those companies couldn't do as well on their own and get benefit from the longevity of cash flows that come from extending the life cycle of these games successfully. Um, maybe I still think that can exist in some ways, but it's been put more under pressure um, recently in the market environment. And then lastly, like. I think just the business models of like the big companies in the space also have a big sway on just how um, M&A happens, right? And so if we look right now, um, we see consolidation coming from console types of companies as they're building their own ecosystems and battling over exclusives and having subscription business models that you maybe don't see in other sides of the industry. And it might, be, and it might actually be worth it for them to pay up 
higher multiples than than otherwise because it has some type of outsized impact on their their business model or competitive advantage. So I think it I think it really just like depends on what you're looking at. But I do think that as a whole, the exit opportunities probably have shrunk down <laughs> a, a little bit. That's probably not rocket science to to say that because even if you look at just like the serial acquirers in the space, like the embracers and the still fronts, like that that business model that they had of being serial acquirers has had to dramatically change, not just because of you know balance sheets weakening by taking on debt or the stock price is falling and so they can't use their shares as well, but just um, the natural like mean reversion that happens when you acquire companies that are slower growing or maybe not as as profitable. Um, so yeah, I think it's a fascinating topic. I tend to think that these things are cyclical. Um, and as like the industry and the economy ebb and flow, like any pains we feel now will, you know, five years from now, it might be like overhyped what, what exits are happening, who knows. Um, but it's an interesting topic. I know we got to go, but that actually makes for a really strange venture valuation world, right? Because you know the companies aren't going to exit for five to 10 years if you're lucky, right? And so you're like, oh, okay, well, so should we just assume that's like, like how should we solve for this, right? And it makes for like, should we be doing larger deals or smaller deals? And I think that's been so interesting. Yeah, we'll wrap up here. That was very interesting. Maybe we can have a deeper topic uh, in another episode. I feel like there's still a lot left to uncover here. Uh, yeah, Seb, Aaron, thank you so much for joining today. It was lovely to have you on and we'll see you all next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.